it's nice to be here. And this is one of my favorite movies, as I had to acknowledge when I rewatched it. It's so good. How long had it been since uh, the last time you saw you saw it? Uh, I feel like. I feel like I've watched it sometime in the last five years because I definitely had logged it on Letterboxd, but I feel like I see it every few years or so. I remember seeing it in the theater. I, I I feel like I saw it in the theater as well, but I don't remember. And I don't think that I had seen it since uh, it came out or since maybe probably like on TBS or something when I was like in middle school or whatever. Yeah, it's definitely like a TNT TBS staple, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like it's a movie we rented a lot for some reason, because um, I, I certainly remember seeing it in full several times, and that was the main way that you did that in those days, right? Yes, you had to actually put it into a, <laughs> to... a machine and hit play and stop. <laughs> yeah, you had to physically like go to a building and purposefully pick out a movie, yeah. I feel like if you were like one of us three at that time, too, you would potentially get home from school, call the video store and be like, Hey, I'm coming by at seven. Do you think you could reserve a league of their own for me so I can get it? And actually we don't take reservations here, but I did it last week. They were, Ron was fine with it. I don't know. Are you saying you won't do it? <laughs> and it's like, uh, fine. I did used to get old movie posters from the video store that was like around the corner from my house, like whenever, because they would get a bunch of posters to put up, you know, mm -hmm. and I would take them just kind of based on vibes, like not even if I had seen the movie or not, you know, like, yep. like I had an aliens poster in my room for like five years. I had never seen aliens until like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did this. My video store actually went out of business when I went to college, which probably says a lot about yeah. how much I was actually keeping them. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in my video store when I was 15 and then I when I stopped working there it was because they changed owners and then by the time I went to college it became a, a dollar store or something <laughs> I think like most video stores in America became a dollar store because I, like I still go to a video store in South Pasadena no well that's way. like I mean that's like for kitsch that's like one of yeah. the few it's left not for you know? but I mean but yes I know yes it's we don't cool. even have um what what you would call it anymore videology like that was we had a kitschy place in New York right and now it's not, it doesn't exist uh, anymore. Alamo Draft House buy the Kim's video archive. Yes. Yeah. That's can you true. like rent I, stuff? Yeah. I believe yeah. you can, but it's also on the Lower East Side, and I live in Prospect Heights, <laughs> so like I'm not just I'm way too lazy for that. Fair. I really want to go check it out, but again for kitsch. Right. Yeah. Not. I mean, the place I go has a ton of stuff that you can't. Obviously, you can't find on streaming. But like, we found a bootleg Blu-ray of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is not available mm -hmm. anywhere. Like, you can't even rent that anywhere. Um, we saw. We got uh, Todd Haynes' Superstar, which is also oh wow. Find. No, yeah. So cool. like, they have yeah. some really interesting stuff. Like, a lot of things like they burned themselves. Yeah. Basically, right. a lot of illegal copies. <laughs> The videos, the cool video store that I went to did that I didn't work at had a copy of Superstar, and I uh, I did a, a dubbed version of it so I could hold on to it. I think I have it somewhere in the house. It's a it's a VHS that has Devo, the men who make the music, and Todd Haynes' Superstar on it. I'd like to lead you all in a little prayer. Dear Lord, 
May our feet be swift. May our bats be mighty. May our balls be plentiful. And Lord, I just like to thank you for that waitress in South Bend. You know who she is. She kept calling your name. This summer, Tom Hanks is managing the impossible. The Rockford Peaches. Columbia Pictures would like to take you out to the ball game for an all-star comedy. They'll pay you $75 a week. We only make 30 at the dairy. Well, then, this would be more, wouldn't it? The manager, Tom Hanks. Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. A league of their own. All right. God knows we have a game. It's not like any of this helps, believe me. Directed by Penny Marshall. Well, welcome to 30 Years Later, everybody. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. Joining me is uh, Chris Chafin. Chris, thanks so much for being here. I'm sorry that we ended up having to skip last week because of our schedules got in the way. You know. uh, many, many apologies to Mark Graham, who watched oh, Batman Returns to be with us. And, uh, Basically happen. was on standby to do a show with us for a week, <laughs> and I blew it every time. I'm yeah, really and it did take, I think uh, you and me both, it took at least three nights to get through Batman Returns because I fell asleep like over and over again <laughs> trying to watch it. I liked Batman Returns. It took me, I got through it in like in a night. Maybe okay. it was two nights. I think, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Were but, you not a fan? Were you not a fan of Batman Returns? That, look, this is a conversation for Mark Graham, okay? Like, I don't know. <laughs> and we're very lucky to be joined tonight by Tyler Coates, the awards editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Tyler, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so, Tyler, you said that this is one of your favorite movies. Yes, it is. It's in my canon. I feel like it's a movie, like we've already said before the conversation started, but, you know... If it's on TV, I will stop everything and watch it. Like, I probably watch it every two or three years, you know, if I just happen to catch it on a streaming service. It's a delight. I love it so much. And that movie that we were talking about, which I failed to mention before <laughs> saying that, <laughs> is uh, 1992's A League of Their Own, directed by Penny Marshall, starring Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, Madonna, Lori Petty, John Lovitz. David Strathairn, Gary Marshall, Bill Pullman, Rosie O'Donnell, just an incredibly stacked cast, uh, written by two sort of um, probably like in their prime Hollywood comedy movie writers at the time, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who wrote Splash and Night Shift. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, you say this is one of your favorite movies. When you rewatch it as an adult, do you think part of that favoritism comes from a nostalgia or do you think it actually holds up as a, a as a film? I think it absolutely holds up as a film. I mean, look, I'm going to be, you know, the gay guy who doesn't care about sports and say this is the best baseball movie ever made. <laughs> I will put, I, mean... I will die on that hill. Um, I mean, it's just, Rewatching it this time, I mean, we're obviously we're gonna get into all this, but like, it's just everything in it is real. Like, it's not like all those crowd scenes, mm -hmm. all, like they crammed hundreds of people in period clothing and like the dead heat of Chicago summers, Midwestern summers, and like made them watch 
actresses play baseball for real. It's just like, just, I mean, on a craft perspective, it's just an incredible looking movie. And then, I don't know, like the cast is, everyone in it is like, it's one of their best performances, I think. To, um, to be clear, I wasn't asking that question because I didn't think it held up. I love Look, this Ricky, movie. don't be a fucking coward. And, you know, yeah. like, you just, like... I, this was my first time watching it since it came out and I was kind I cried, one. <laughs> I, I think the ending is actually I cried. Quite I cried a little bit too, yeah, for sure. And it's also just really good. It's a real like it's a really well written screenplay that's competently directed, handled efficiently, and that's really kind of all you can ask for from a movie like this at this period of time because they had the money to make these movies just look good. And I think people misunderstand what like looks good means sometimes because they think that it means that it's like visually audacious. But honestly, sometimes like a few well-placed crane shots yeah. can do a really great job of establishing a fucking movie. You know, like you, like you really feel like you're in a movie and in a world with just an exterior crane shot that lowers into the baseball. You field. just feel like you're in a real place that actually exists. And you know, Tyler, it's so funny that you said this, like, I have, like I said, I've seen this movie a hundred times and I watched it again and, you know, it didn't even, it didn't occur to me that they were like really hitting real baseballs and like in these like wide shots, like you're totally correct, right? Like that's amazing. I mean, talk about fidelity to reality, right? That it just, I just assumed that would be fake, but it's like, no, you're really watching people really hit baseballs. There is like a solid 10 minutes of this movie that's just like, cool dingers and stuff like baseball the, highlights yeah, yeah the montages i mean every movie is a montage this is a, it's a lot of montage i will give it that but like, <laughs> again as someone who doesn't care about sports that much and really wants to see the most exciting parts this delivers like every single amazing baseball game you could possibly wish for um set to a Hans zimmer score which is incredible like i don't see i can't complain about any of that stuff you really forget that Hans Zimmer's been at this for so long oh until God, you right. tune into a movie from 1990 and you're like, oh, fuck, Hans Zimmer's doing the score to this movie? <laughs> yeah. Because he had his like big glow up in like the Batman, the Dark Knight era, right? That was the moment where he became like a kind of household name. But you forget that, yeah, he did the score for True Romance for A League of Their Own. He's been around for 30 plus years at this point. Yeah, um, and, and he's still fucking at it. I mean, I've told my one Hans Zimmer story on this show before, right? Haven't I? Like, I worked I worked with him on some project for something with his, like, people. You know, I didn't really ever talk to Hans Zimmer. He did the score for something, obviously. And they were like, you know, Hans was very interested in this project, actually. Um, it was He was really consumed with it, and he worked on it, like, all afternoon. <laughs> that was, like, the sum total of the work he had put in on doing the score. This. Yeah, he has a whole factory of musicians yeah. at this point. Yeah, right. He's kind of like the uh, the Jeff Koons of uh, musicians, right? Doesn't doesn't like just has like a whole like studio a, yeah, of people right, right. making stuff that he can put his name on. You brought up the montages, Tyler, and I think that when we think of sports movie montages, they're always kind of relegated to the getting better montage, the or like the training montage, mm. the sort of coming back from behind montage, the. Uh, the just sort of getting better as a team and everybody coming together. And I feel like this movie doesn't totally feature those montages, or at least it doesn't lean too heavy on them as story beats. It, the montages are more like 
it's girls playing baseball. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Look, at the, yes. look at these girls play baseball. They're so good. Hey, you watch her catch this baseball. It's really cool. And I have to say, like, on paper, that does not work at all. But for some reason in this movie, it's so much better than a montage where we have to teach Madonna how to play baseball. Right. Or we have to, like, teach a character how, how, how to win the game. There's something so much more realistic about they're just playing i mean i would be very curious to hear about like what the editing process of this was because obviously there's a lot of this film is heavily scripted but then there are are those baseball montages that you have to imagine were just like put together from like hours and hours of incredible footage of them actually playing baseball and like, I mean, supposedly they got really hurt playing, oh, like yeah. filming the movie. Yeah, like people like got their noses broken. And there's that scene where somebody is in the locker room and they have this gigantic bruise on yeah. their leg. This like, and that was real, supposedly. Like everybody was ripping all the skin off their legs, like because they were really playing baseball in these skirts and like sliding into home and stuff. Apparently, Lori Lori Petty broke her foot. As well, she said at one point, I parent, in the interview where she said she broke her foot, she also was very quick to be like, but I loved the movie and I had a great time. It was okay. It was okay. It was okay. Because the interview, the interview where she said she broke her foot was in 2020 or oh, 2021. Right. Yeah, right. So she very much had to be like, do, do not make a thing of this, please. Lori Petty <laughs> abused on the set of... Uh, I'm sure, yeah, I mean, this movie would not get made today in the same way because not only would the every single crowd scene be computerized and yeah lacking that humanity <laughs> like but like it's because they would have never like they probably paid those extras like two dollars and like, oh, this is madonna <laughs> and like all of those female actors were like getting the shit kicked out of them <laughs> which would right. never happen today like the i just don't think the unions would like allow it so there is like i don't know it's like oh the magic of the real filmmaking or whatever but um I think that that plays into it. There's like a certain reality that comes from like that authentic quality of just like how physical the performances are that like, I don't think is ever really, you talk about like physical performances and like, this is never one that like gets looped into that, you know, yeah, right. Right. Something that you would think. No, it never an intense male driven film. Um, but like I couldn't do any of this stuff. I'm very impressed every time oh, I no, watch. No, yeah, incredible. Yeah, somebody got their nose broken by like having a baseball glove thrown at their face. <laughs> yeah. Like that's really fucked up, dude. Was it the kid? Stillwell Angel? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it was one like of the women. Really, unfortunately, I feel like they really like, threw that at that kid too. <laughs> it does look like it really fucking nails him right in the face, right? How great is Hanks's reaction to hitting that kid in the face? It's, great. it's so good. I, I feel like most impressions of Tom Hanks are largely based yes. on his performance in this movie. The way that he yells all the time, like all of his his all of his mannerisms. I know his most famous line is from the movie, but all the mannerisms feel like any impression is just lifted from this performance. Yeah. And it's also like a weird, you know, he was still like, he wasn't, I feel like as beloved as this paternal figure as he is now, because he was still like, you know, in his thirties then, but it still feels like a pretty surprising Tom Hanks role. Cause he's such a dickhead for most of it. And it, like, I don't know, in a really fun and interesting way to watch him be a dickhead and just like so openly mean and rude <laughs> <laughs> like even you know he had done a lot of you know he'd done some comedies in his early career where he got to play that way but i feel like when this came out he was like at the top of his like a-list actor game but he hadn't won his oscar yet that's true yeah 
his Oscar is comes the next year with uh, Philadelphia. with Philadelphia. Yeah, has yeah. yeah. he? He's won two, right? Philadelphia, Forrest Gump. Is there a third? No, many nominations, but no, and they were two. I think they were back to back. Is he going to get nominated for for, for Elvis? Elvis? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> come on come on give us the dish yeah. uh, i don't think so. no, 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 no yeah um no i i but you know i mean having just seen elvis and i'll keep my opinions about that aside i think that this is such a this like blows that out of the water for sure and again like talk about authenticity like he's in terrible shape he's not wearing prosthetics or padding because they didn't do that. You know, <laughs> he like looks like absolute is, shit. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like. Well, this is. It's this actually is really mean. But one of the one of the pieces of trivia on the IMDb is that Penny Marshall encouraged Tom Hanks to keep eating off screen <laughs> for his character, <laughs> and, and wait, wait, and discouraged Rosie O'Donnell from eating. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I, I didn't make that up, but it's like a very mean <laughs> IMDb trivia quote. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. who knows if that is even true, but I could believe it. I was trying to think of a uh, uh, like a movie equivalent for a league of their own these days, uh, and I think the closest thing that I could come to was um, Hidden Figures. Yeah, it's about what? it's about women, and it's also a movie that is not about like I kept trying to think of movies that were ju- that in the last like ten years that were just about like a team of women or a large group of women, and oftentimes they are. Um, like a team of women mimicking a male, like what a, a typically male movie. Like Ocean's Eight, right. And one of the, I think one of the big successes of A League of Their Own, at least for me, and a big success of Hidden Figures is that it's not doing that at all. It's not trying to uh, mimic the, the, the beats or the notes of some other male movie that we've already seen. Right. I mean, I it is a sports movie, though. Like, so it is in a certain way. It exists in the genre of the sports movie, which is a traditionally male genre. I mean, it's a bunch of misfits coming together to play the big game. You know, that is that is the sports yes. plot. So in that sense, they very much like are playing in the, the realm of like a male space. Right. But I know what you mean. How, how important is the big game at the end of the movie? It's, it doesn't really. I mean. Matter it it really hinges on the fact that like it's a story about two sisters and like they're competing, right, right. you know, their competition with each other, but also with themselves. Like, but then again, this is the plot okay, of Top. Yeah, this is Top Gun. You know, this is the plot of Top Gun, right? These like two competing people who are dri- driving each other to greater excellence or something. Okay, fair enough. Maybe it does play off of the tropes of the the American sport, Hollywood sports movie. <laughs> but I don't. Think, but I don't think you don't like it. Really, whether or not they're winning or losing doesn't really matter until the matter, final yeah. thing, and it sort of, you know, sets up this, you know, question about you know, who if Dottie let the ball drop, that sort of thing. Um, right. But yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think of this as like the traditional sports movie, and that we're like watching a circuit like them like winning certain games to like achieve like a certain level you know i feel like by the time they get to the playoffs it's sort of like oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. they've gotten there and that's great and all we really want to do is watch these gals play baseball and that's what we're getting and what we're <laughs> so good about it I, yeah i guess i guess one of the the major differences is that usually in sports movies it's about an individual character who shouldn't be there mm-hmm. Right, and they have to prove usually a man. Lori Petty, has to the, prove, the Lori Petty character in this movie. 
But Lori Petty's not the main character. Gina Davis is. But I mean, that is her arc, though, right? Is that she's? I, like... I get that that's her arc, but it's like normally that's Rudy's arc. Normally right, that's right, the natural's right, arc. Right, normally right. that's. Like in this movie, by the time you get to the end, you're just excited that they're all there. But I do agree. I like, mean, I'm being a dick, but I do agree that like it's not traditionally, it's not a real, a regular sports movie. Um, to the yeah, point, you're not at, you're not at the end. Like, oh my god, is Laurie Petty gonna gonna? I hope Laurie Petty beats Gina Davis. You kind of want either of them to win, and you're just happy that all these women are playing baseball. <laughs> I think that that says something to why, like, why it is a particularly female story too is that it's more about solidarity and camaraderie than it is about the competition between the individuals or like watching one right one of these women like pull ahead of all the other ones and i think that that's also reflected in like the book ended you know the framing device um the song that they sing which like i can sing that song from memory i'm not gonna do it <laughs> like, that song will get in my head and i can't get it out for days um how does it how does how does it matter up that, that's all i'm gonna do but <laughs> i can literally i like literally can see sue ellen in the fucking back you know the what's the backstage back, uh locker room uh and singing that starting that song what's the sports track. version of the backstage yeah, i mean they're putting on a show that's all this is um I mean, that is true, right? In a way, it's also, yeah, they are just, like, putting on a show. Like, gals putting on a show. Yeah. And proving that they can do it and proving that they have the talent and, like, and that they can find the audience for it. I mean, it's really, there. I, I feel like the whole the whole conflict of the movie is, like, proving themselves worthy um, and learning right. that they are worth, like, the great Rosie O'Donnell monologue on the bus where she's talking about her boyfriend is this guy who... She really is just entertaining because he's the only person who ever noticed her in any sort of way. And she's through this experience of working with these women and, and entertaining the people in the, in the stands, basically she's gathered like a whole sense of like identity and empowerment that she doesn't need this like piece of shit guy wherever to like give to her who wasn't even giving it to her in the first place. So I think like that's what's so interesting about it. It feels it doesn't even feel like a it feels like a very ensemble driven movie to me because all of the women get their own interesting stories as to what who they are and why they are these misfits that like didn't fit at home and they found, you know, a chosen family, if you will, in the American Girls Baseball League. I guess one of the things that I was what I what I was thinking about when I was talking about it not being a typical sports movie is, and when I was referencing the way that most uh, sort of like ensemble female movies now are like, you know, uh, they're gonna do a heist or they're they're a bunch of CIA agents. A lady Ghostbusters, like, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, Lady Ghostbusters or something like they have to be a play off of what was typically a man's movie, and that's. Hey, that's fine. That's great. Uh, that's okay, guys. I think. I mean, I think. Yeah. Could, I also would say I think that's great. I think that's. Great. I think it's short-sighted on an executive person's an executive and <laughs> whatever studio. I'll say that. I, I, I agree with that. movies with women, but I, I want like new stories. But yeah, I agree that it's short-sighted on the executive side, but I also think that short-sightedness hobbles any kind of message. Or that the, that the movie might be trying to make because I watch a League of Their Own 
and there are all these message moments in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. There are the skirts. There are the way that they're yeah. treated by men. They're being made fun of by men. And for some reason, at no point in this movie am I rolling my eyes because the movie's being heavy-handed wow. about the messages. When it is being heavy-handed. It's... But it works for some reason in this movie. At least to me it does because something about it doesn't feel like they're like it feels like it's part of the lived in experiences of this world that it's depicting versus making up some fake world where now they're going to have like a rando sexist character walk in and say the theme of the movie and then walk out of the room. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I think that that's, I don't know. And like, and and I do think it's a little bit of a product of its time where it doesn't have like a, a set agenda that like, that I think, yeah, a lot right. of, yeah. I think that like a lot of audiences either demand or studios think that they're demanding and the studios yeah. are placating to cover their backs in a way of like making sure like all boxes are ticked. And I feel like, like there's no way possible way to misinterpret what the movie right, is saying. Exactly. And like when you're ticking off all the boxes, that's great. But also like the biggest box you have to tick off is like, is this a compelling story that's worth telling and watching? And like, you know... Well, so this is what I, so this is like one of my main takeaways from the movie uh, is like, obviously we're watching it. We're doing this episode, like right after Roe is overturned, you know? And I was thinking how in a lot of ways, like not to fucking bring the room down guys. I know we're having a good time. No, and no, no, it's been no, down no. since Friday. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, we can only. I just was, <laughs> I think, I think my, my deep sigh was less about that row has come down, which is worthy of an even deeper yeah, side, right. I mean, but it's... recognizing my immediate compartmentalization yeah, right. that I hadn't even thought of that going into this conversation. So what, so what I was, I mean, I still, so I was thinking about the whole time watching this movie <laughs> and you're talking about how it's schmaltzy, but it like works. Right. And I totally think that that's true. This movie is like, it is just so schmaltzy and so sentimental, but it also works really well. And I think it's like, because these sort of schmaltz tropes, like we don't have enough artists making schmaltz right now. And that is what I think the nineties had that we need to bring back because these, these tropes and these like character arcs and they're so impactful that even when like the lifetime channel makes a movie with these that like absolutely sucks, it like kind of touches you and makes you up, you know, makes you feel something. And so like, imagine when like, some of the most talented filmmakers in the world are making a movie like that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that's what you really could have in the nineties. Um, and a, a movie like this where it is complete schmaltz and like propaganda in a certain way, but it's like so well done and so effective. And like, I was like, we need more movies like the intern. <laughs> the in- Nancy Myers is the intern. Yes. Yes. Movies like, yes, I'll, exactly. I'll accept that. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. And I think that like, also it's like, is a character-driven movie. Like, every single character in this movie has some, like, internal dilemma that is, like, manifested externally in such a brilliant way. And it doesn't, you know, I mean, one ding I could say, you know, like, is it as inclusive as it might be if it was made today? Like, there's the one throwaway scene where you see, like, the Black woman throw the, the baseball. And I feel like that, that's as far as they got with that. Well, you know, there's not yeah. like. Definitely. If that movie, if the movie were made today, the next scene would be that woman would be on the team. Yeah. Whereas in, in this movie, they just never see her again. Or we would know? talk, we would be talking about like sexuality more. And like, because certainly yeah. there were lesbians in, in the girls baseball league. And, <laughs> and certainly some of these characters were probably based on 
real queer women that we just in 1992 we did not have the language that we do um mm-hmm. to just to identify and describe it but also there was like an unwillingness too at the time i mean <laughs> that, that wouldn't have that just wouldn't have worked uh like i talk about a studio executive probably being like absolutely not um so i mean let's be real though Let, like i think the movie is doing I'll probably end up cutting this, but I think the movie, <laughs> I, I think in, I think I think the movie is doing what it can for 1992 in terms of like depiction of the lesbian community. Yeah. I think especially like when when Gina Davis shows up at the end at the baseball field, that is not. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is not like a gang of straight older women. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. It's subtext, and it's like. It's it's treating its audience not like morons. It's treating its audience as people who are able to identify that. I don't think I was able to identify it when I was nine years old when I first saw it. Obviously, but <laughs> I don't think the don't older think I, I get, I can certainly be like, okay, I know what's going on here. Um, I don't. I don't think people who were forty years old in nineteen ninety. Well, I mean, they have explicitly have them all being like, "Boy, I can't wait to marry my husband." Like. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a very, it is a very hetero film, I would say. Even, even it's like, even the queer touches that I think that you can find. But like, I, I don't know. I, this, I, this is how I react to every movie that was made before 2000, basically. <laughs> I'm like, it's on, it's, I got to find it. I got to find the subject. <laughs> it's here. It's here. Will, if you and I'll point yeah. it out and I'll enjoy it. Um, but I don't need it to do it for me necessarily. Have you have either of you seen the show that was on Amazon? It hasn't. It's launching this summer. Oh, it hasn't come out. No, yet. it's coming out this in the next month or so, I think. Yeah. Um, oh wow. Which I don't know. I will probably have to watch at some point just for work. I I don't want to say that I'm against it because I, I <laughs> but like I just don't know. I mean, again, like we're talking about nostalgia driven things, and which this inherently was. Too. I mean, yeah, for sure, right? This is like a very postmodern thing where we're like now, the show is nostalgic for a '90s film, which was nostalgic for like a 1940s event. Um, but I do. I, what I fear is that the show will do exactly what we've just talked about. What we like the movie not doing, which was explaining way too much about the characters, and I think it's you know, there are going to be whole episodes about you know queerness and a character's journey and that sort of thing and i mean somebody's gonna have like a terribly abusive husband absolutely right? like physical, yeah. yeah and like you know i mean again like television allows more space to do that i think if that would have been shoehorned in it would have become really mud- muddied down in the film i th- i think the inherent issue with that is though is that nobody actually wants to watch people from that time reacting to race or queerness in a lighthearted show. Cause even the best of people would say something fucking monstrous oh <laughs> like in the moment. And so it's like that, like there's like an inherent in lack of authenticity to have people in 1944 having some sort any kind of like open-minded, even if they're surrounded by it, an open-mindedness to, to, to queerness in any way or, or to, to race, you know, like 
if the movie was real, like Lori Petty would have gotten the ball thrown back by the black woman. And then like, why isn't she, she playing? And five of the players would have said the N word immediately. <laughs> like, yeah. like no one wants to see that. And somebody, that would yes, have taken but... the, somebody would have taken the ball and like wiped it off after the, yeah. that's what would have happened. <laughs> fucking horrible. And that is like a very, that is a very, like, that's a nineties liberal whitewashing too. Of just like, look how inclusive we are by showing this. And there's a little bit of that now too. I think that like, we're not shown the worst of these people, which I think is for the best. Cause it does have, it maintains a very light tone, mm-hmm. even while it has serious things that happen in, in the movie. It, it's kind of at this pitch of like, I mean, it's maybe this is just cause it's set in the forties, but it has like a farce pitch to it. You know, a lot. Of- yeah. I mean, it's also, it's a Penny Marshall movie, so it's going to be a comedy yeah. before it's a drama. And it has, I think the drama in it is so well done. And, you know, I think the writing, I mean, the first, the opening, 45 minutes by the time they get to the first like tryout. I mean, that first sequence with John Lovitz is just so incredible. He's so good in it. Like he's great. He's I've, great. Like yeah. I, I, because I'm the awards editor at THR not to brag, but I now, <laughs> whenever I watch an old movie, I play like my award season game where I'm like, Oh, like how would I like, what stories would I do about like a league of their own? And I was, you know, I always, I try to think about like, oh, what would this would have been nominated for? This was nominated for nothing, which is shocking oh to God. me because it is gorgeous. But also, you look at like, I'll do, I'll pull it up on as I as I rant. Um, <laughs> but you you know, I think if there were ten Oscar nominated Best Picture nominations, this would have been for sure a contender because it was a huge box office hit. Like it has all these stars. It's so well made. But at the Love same it, time. Yeah. Let me pull up Wikipedia because I just looked this up. Um, so this was the year that Unforgiven won Best Picture. And the four other nominees were The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, Howard Zen, and Son of a Woman. It's amazing that The Crying Game was nominated over this movie. That actually fucking rules, in all honesty. The Crying Game won Best Original Screenplay that year, which this would have been nominated for. I mean... Best Director, Clint Eastwood. Best Actor, Al Pacino. Best Actress, Emma Thompson, Howard Zen. Gene Hackman, Unforgiven, Best Supporting. And Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Vinny. I mean, maybe it had a shot in that category. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, John Lovitz today would absolutely be like a Dark Horse supporting actor (laughs) nomination. I think this is a movie that was very easy. Making $100 million in 1992 was pretty easy to take for granted in terms of movies. Now it's like, that's just a runaway box office smash. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like everything, everywhere, all at once has made what? Like $70 million, $60 million. And it's like the biggest indie film of all time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I won't talk about that movie any more than I already have on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, but I think that I think I think also movies like this whether they made a hundred million dollars or not were also very easy to take for granted because there were a lot of I mean maybe that's hard to say because there aren't that many movies like this but it felt like at the time that there were a lot of movies that were just sort of easy breezy and and well made Uh, and filled with craft time and and again like a movie you know Time and again, you know that movie. Time and also with Rosie O'Donnell, isn't that Time? Now and then, now and then. then. Yeah, all right. Now and then, (laughs) time and again. You know that movie, Time Time and and again. again. You guys know this one. 
future yeah, past you guys know this movie? You know, I mean, right. I, I think also it's just like they didn't know, you know, there was no way around how much it cost to make those movies and use those crafts. Like you just had to do it. There was nothing. You had to shoot on location for a movie like that that's set in a period of time. You, you have to get a real tour bus and like drive it down a real road in the desert. Like how else would you get a shot of that? You know? Exactly. And I mean, again, and that comes to like, even just like the the stadium sequences are just so full of life because they were really actually human beings like engaging with each other. Yeah. on film and like you just don't get that anymore which is a but shame i mean i think we're i think we're coming back around because and i know that top gun maverick uh i didn't particularly love it but yeah. one of the things that people are saying about it at least that i fam, like people who are not movie buffs are they're excited to have gone to see a movie that didn't look like a marvel movie yeah you know, and like just regular people who see movies are like, wow, that stuff that they actually did looked really cool. And it doesn't sound like the sort of typical, like, wow, he actually did that oh, stuff. God. It sounds like they're genuinely blown away by like <laughs> what people can do on a movie that's not green screen. Exactly. Know? And the yeah. clips that I've seen of Thor Love and Thunder look like we're pretty much reaching the peak of like <laughs> what they even want to try on green screen yeah. I mean, anymore. No, Marvel movies are literally just... It's basically who framed Roger Rabbit yeah, without for sure. like, I mean, any sort of soul. It's all animation. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, it's tough because oh, like... Such an incredible I amount of the, hard work the they put into it. And there's so many of them working too. on a project and that like, is, nobody like, would even have talent any idea like, who these people are. VFX you know? people are non-union and not paid well and are like, driven insane. Right. Right. And they're the first people to get the shit for what was probably a poor directorial choice. So I, so there's like a, you know, it's a catch 22 there, but, um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think that like what I'm so excited about movies and like, you know, especially in my job, I get to talk to a lot of production designers and, you know, editors and craftspeople that I would have never talked to had I not been working at a trade in a very specific beat. And they just like the lack of ego they have about like the fact that like something that they spend weeks on could maybe take up two seconds of screen time. It's incredible. And like, you just forget all of that, how much, like how many people put so much energy and effort in this. And like, it is a group. It truly is a group project. It's not that one person is leading, but you know, it's, I, I think on top, I think on top of that, one of the things that you forget about a movie like A League of Their Own is that it was a, uh, it was initially a pitch and they pitched it and they got paid to write the script, mm. right? And they got paid for like a year mm -hmm. to research and write a script. And then upon coming to production, and they're probably still writing as they're getting to production, like this whole thing started in 88, right? And they didn't really get close to shooting until 90. And then in 90... Uh, one of the Fox pulled the plug on the movie just before they were about to shoot. So then Sony picked up the movie and they had another year of pre-production and writing, and then they started shooting the movie. So you've got five years of people getting paid to come up with the story of this movie, which really shows in the movie. Cause it is extremely hard to juggle all of those storylines yeah. and know how much of each person you need to show in order to wrap their character up. Cause as soon as a character like Madonna's character is not big, 
Yeah. But as soon as she appears as much as she does in the beginning, she needs to be, a bone needs to be put on her at some point. So you need to know, you need to figure out how much you need to set up. You, she needs three, three arcs, right? She needs a setup and then a middle, and then she needs an ending. Rosie O'Donnell needs that. Kit needs that. Dot. Everybody, Tom Hanks needs that. It's incredibly hard to manage. And you do that with time and development. And these dramatic, like most dramatic movies that are coming out now, like don't really have that, you know, they're like, Hey, we bought a script. Let's go. Yeah. And like, especially, <laughs> or, no, we're not, we're not going to pay this guy $50,000 to write for another year, you know, yeah. unless it's like, unless it's like Martin Scorsese doing killers of the flower moon or something, or like a big name like that. But otherwise, and then even then, like they're not going to listen to any, they're doing their own thing. Right. Yeah. I think it, it's, yeah. it's very rare. to I feel like, the number of like working screenwriters who can oh my god can yeah. work like that it's less than 10 whose names that you actually yeah. see like on screen with the finished product um, i mean to do a year of research and writing i mean insane by on and being paid to do it right right i mean it's still you know it still happens on a very very smaller scale for sure but not yeah i mean this is this is like the best case scenario i would say because there's a lot of history in it there's a lot of like accuracy that needs to be there. There's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of poetic license they need to take. And they, and I feel like they did it really well. Like this is not a movie that I, if this movie came out today, there'd be like 15 different websites would like run some explainer about what's real and what's not. And who gives a shit? <laughs> because like <laughs> it is all fictional. Like I, if it came out today, I think it would also not be ensemble driven. It would, Maybe about two sisters, but they'd have to be real. Like we'd have to like put as much like like marketing narrative around it to make it work. Right, like, like based on the true story of the two amazing sisters. Exactly, and it would have to be based on like a magazine article or something. And this is right. truly an original idea that you know is obviously based on something true, but it was not relying on anyone else's like previous IP at all. No, Penny Marshall was watching a documentary on PBS about the women's baseball league and went, Hey, that's a cool idea for a movie. Yeah. Called up two called up two screenwriters. They said they put it like a small pitch together. At that time, if you were Penny Marshall and you just come off big and you've got these two screenwriters in your pocket, your pitch is probably a, a, a log line. Yeah. Like you've walked into an office that's like a movie about girls playing baseball in World War II. Here's money, go write it. Like yeah. that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like what you're doing. Now, even if you're Penny, even if you're someone with the success of Penny Marshall, you're probably seeing this documentary and you're probably thinking, okay, I'm gonna get if you have your own money or like an overhead deal, maybe you're gonna hire some writers to work on it. Or you're gonna start researching it yourself, and then you're gonna work for like a month on a treatment, maybe even a deck, like a visual deck that you can bring mm -hmm. in. And you're gonna do all of this shit for free. And then you're going to hope that someone gives you money to write the script and the amount of money they're going to give you, you're only going to want to work on it for like a month. Yeah. And they'll probably end up just saying it should be a series anyway. So. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, thank God. Movie. Like, you know, like sporty's too long ago. Like, you know, just make it a TV show. They'll make it cheaper that way. And it would look like shit. Like, yeah. Oh, it would look this even if it was a movie, this would look like shit yes. these days. Yes. This would look like absolute garbage. It would be like HD and everybody would look very print like pristine in all their outfits yeah. and it would look very clean. 
just would look bad. Well, yeah, I, you know, I was um, thinking too, like just the lighting in this movie, and like you talk about what cinematography actually is. Yeah, right. And like the cap capturing the light and everything. Like, there's so many just gorgeous shots of like that bus driving through like a cornfield or whatever at night or dusk mm. or you know. You know, and even the shots on the interior of the tour bus are like lit like beautifully. Yeah, you know, in a way that is like realistic, but also in a way that is so you know cinematic, for lack of a better word, right? I think what most people don't understand is that all this shit takes time, which equals money. Yeah, and that there's a lot less money going into movies now, or the money that is going into movies now isn't going into production itself; it's going into above the line. Uh, which is like director, writer, stars. And then on top of that, I think it just costs more money to make a movie and no one's actually putting more money into it. Like this movie costs what, like $40 million, I think. Which I would, the budget was yeah $40 million. The budget for licorice pizza was, I think less than $40 million. Right. Oh my God. You know, like they are having, filmmakers are having to figure out how to do more with less yeah i mean again and, and you do have tom hanks gina davis and madonna uh, yeah, like yes. they're they're not cheap either so i'm sure that that uh, plenty of that went to them. that's true um because she and apparently, won an oscar by then uh madonna's like yeah i i don't i'm not a, i don't know madonna's like discography by heart yeah. but like this probably was around the time of like erotica like Maybe yeah, well, we just before, did, but... we did um, Truth or Dare, right, on the show, and we also did Dick this... Tracy, so. Okay. <laughs> that was, yeah. So it was probably, yeah. So this is just yeah. after, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, like, apparently, Milo Schwarman's DP worked on it, which is also why it's beautiful. He did Amadeus and Ragtime, like, it's no joke. You did Silkwood. I'm apparently, reading Wikipedia at this point. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> this Gar- is a lot of a show. Don't apologize. That's great. Apparently, Gary Marshall is only in it because Christopher Walken was out of their budget. Uh, Penny Marshall <laughs> at that point couldn't couldn't afford Christopher Walken anymore, so she just asked her brother to do the movie. I love that. I'm glad they did. It. I'm glad he did it. I mean, I would. It's great. Would, He's great in the part. Yeah. He's great in the part. Yeah. Can I ask uh, what part made you cry? Oh, um, it's, I, it's, it's actually when I knew, when I knew the sisters were going to be coming together, Uh you know, when they actually come together, I didn't get that emotional, but I knew like I'm channeling the end of the movie and what the movie had to do. I just started getting emotional thinking about it. And then I also cry at, um, the son whose mother has passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the guy from, um, from Teen Wolf, I can't remember that actor's name. Oh yeah, uh, but you know who I'm talking. You know, you know he was in Teen Wolf, wasn't he? I, Maybe Teen Wolf Two. I don't know. I think the, the I know Telegram Delivery Guy is that who you're talking about? The what? Who are you talking about? Who was in Teen Wolf Two? Oh, the older so the- version of Stillwell. Oh, okay, okay, right, right. Oh, yeah, that guy. No, is is he the guy that's in like Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Was it that guy? Yes, yes, that's him. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought yeah, you were going to say when Betty Spaghetti's husband died, because I feel like I'm still working through that. <laughs> 30 years later. I, my father took oh, me to man. see this. We were on vacation in the Outer Banks. And when Betty Spaghetti's husband died, like he, 
almost yeah. broke down and I immediately made fun of him afterwards. And he was like, <laughs> day this will happen to you. And it does. It's, it's <laughs> one day your husband will die in world war two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No. Mark for Mark Holton. Mark Sorry. Holton. Yeah. That who play, that's who plays older still well. But I didn't, you, Ty, Tyler, I just have such main character syndrome and have my entire life that when Betty Spaghetti's husband dies, my main reaction is like, oh, good. I thought it was Gina Davis's husband. <laughs> you mean, that is how you're supposed to consume the scene, I think. You know? Right, and then I, there is sort of like that red herring scene immediately afterwards where Gina Davis is crying and then her husband, Bill Pullman, comes home. Right, but, like yeah. meets them in like Racine or something. I don't know where. Like that's like the shot. one hole in this film for me, because I guess <laughs> like she just assumes that he is dead because she hasn't heard from him for a long time, but then he right. just shows up and he's like, "I was shot." Um, it was a sniper. Don't worry, I'm fine. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it is funny because I mean, like multiple times you see a picture of her husband and it's Bill Pullman, and you're like, "Well, so when's Bill Pullman going to show up?" You know, right. like. <laughs> Bill Pullman wasn't just doing photography modeling for this movie, you know? <laughs> I loved when Bill Pullman showed up. I love I, him. I love, I love Bill Pullman. And it's like, oh, her husband's the great guy. He's a great guy. This is, it's Bill Pullman. The nicest made, man in movies. Yeah. That was the part that made me tear up was when he goes, and this, when he goes like, that's my wife. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh yeah. That's so sweet, man. <laughs> um, also, um, when, so- when Marla leaves her father when he won't oh, when John oh, yeah. Lovitz and he's like I, I raised her as a boy I didn't know any better that always wants <laughs> oh to get me which like I mean their subtext ding ding um, but I didn't yeah. know any better <laughs> that was a part where I was kind of like I don't know about this that and all the jokes about the one woman being ugly right I mean not to get into the questions Ricky but like it oh, was no, please I mean, I'll save it for later, I guess. But there were so many jokes about one character just being like an uggo. Right. Which is such a like 1940s kind of thing. Right. <laughs> like they just, the camera pants to her and Tom Hanks goes, sheesh, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> and like the, <laughs> the, uh, the charm school. And she's like, yeah, a lot, I recommend a lot of night games. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's also like that's that is like how this movie has been seared into my brain. Like I hear those line readings like a lot of night games um, because I've just seen it so many times. And it's just like it's just burned in there. It does remind me of like plays I would be in in high school. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like a 1940s comedy. We did a lot of those at Port St. Lucie High School. Yeah, it has a guys and girls vibe. Yeah. Like a Neil Simon thing. Yeah, like Neil Simon things are like things you have never even heard of, you know, just weird farces set in 1946 where they're like shouting the names of gossip columnists from, <laughs> you know. Wait, can we talk about the the ugly thing one more time because I was thinking about this while I was watching the movie and we were sort of touching on it earlier in terms of like what is realistic and 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 what is not. And like all of those sort of body shaming moments or you know, physical beauty shaming moments based off the status quo, what the status quo considers beautiful are in retrospect wrong. Yes. But they were also at the time built around a collective status quo that sort of allowed everybody to enjoy the movie versus be taught what the movie was trying to teach Mm -hmm. it. And I think that is kind of 
part of what I think, I think the collective experience of movies like this are often missing now, which is that there is a perspective that is a somewhat, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a minority perspective, but it's a, a smaller percentage perspective than I think what a league of where a league of their own was coming from. And therefore it requires a fair amount of explanation and being didactic. Mm -hmm. And it removes the idea. It removes the ability to just tell a very simple joke that everybody is just kind of like on board with because there's a status quo of normalcy that everybody, no one questions like in retrospect for the worse. Like that's bad. Yeah. Like, like, like you feel a pressure, like a film today feels a pressure to like model like everything in it has to be a model or a commentary, like directly. Nothing can just be like a product of the society that you live in. Like, like we all know this kind of joke people make, like, you know, it's fine. And it's in the movie. It's like, you have to, whereas today a movie is much more self-conscious about like modeling a positive world. And, you know, like you can't, yeah, yeah you can't just like, you can't just be part of society. You have to be like somehow like directing society. And it's like the idea that people don't make those jokes anymore or talk like that privately because the character's making a private joke to somebody else. Right. It's not and that character is also running a charm school. They're a mean, fucking asshole. Right, yeah. I can't yeah. And I can't I mean I can't say it's like negative totally this idea that cuz the movies do have a huge influence and you do have to be conscious of that but like, you know, so I I'm not going to say it's bad for movies to be conscious of the like power they have in that area. But yeah, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I think it was also the status quo of 1992, which is sort of right. yeah. to think about like that. It's, you know, the the joke at her expense works for a 40s audience and a 90s audience. And, right. you know, there are always going to be people who think that's funny. There are going to be people who think it's not funny. You know, it does. I feel like the movie, you know, even it's in moments like that where it like could feel a little callous towards a certain character. You know, I feel like I want I, I I feel the same. I feel like I'm closer to what you're saying, uh, Ricky, whereas like I don't I don't want this the world to be unrealistic and like sanitized. And mm-hmm. I often wonder like what is like the middle ground between like you know, how do you make fun of something or how do you show like maybe bigotry or ignorance without like reiterating it and like reiterating the fat joke or the ugly joke or whatever which like i think that that you know you could have that conversation to death about licorice pizza you know whether or not that's like coming from like if you're supposed to laugh with someone or at someone um and i don't know like like arch like archie bunker is the classic example of this right, right right you know like I think McBride probably has that. Like Gemstones and Eastbound yeah, probably true. have that. Oh, he, for our contemporary times, just nailed he, it. He does completely. it really well because he. I mean, he's from that environment. He's from not far from where I grew up, actually, in Virginia, and so he's like mimicking people that he like the assholes, the good old boys that he grew up with, and he is also so charming that he can like. That's why you still want to watch him be that asshole. But this is a structural problem, I think, too, is like, I think you're totally right, Tyler, that Danny McBride is good at this because he hasn't, he knew these people in in real life. Mm -hmm. And I think the structure of the movie industry today is such that like, a lot of these people who are making movies, like they don't really know any real people, like, especially not any like weird, poor, real people, you know, a lot of them are like second or third generation Hollywood people or 
you know, their parents are some kind of like extremely wealthy plastic surgeon and they don't have to actually get a job and they can write screenplays for their whole twenties or, you know, so it just, it's like an impression of what you see on TV instead of an impression of real life. Right. I think it's going back to the go taking it back to the charm school teacher saying uh, a lot of night games, right? You actually have who, someone who is not, a positive character in the movie doing something that isn't positive. It just happens to be that the thing they're doing is kind of funny. Like it's a funny, it's a good, it's a good joke. Right. And I think the question is if this movie were made now, would they allow that person to have a good joke or would that person end up just being villainous and, 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 and grotesque? That's a good question. Cause I feel, you know, it, it happens before that with uh, John Lovitz who, Again, like part of the reason why he's so good in this is that he's playing such an asshole character, but he's so good at it. The rapport he has with Gina Davis, especially, is like so quick and funny. And, you know, you need some, like, he's a dick because she's powerful enough to stand up to him and, like, kind of put him in his place. Maybe he doesn't get it. Maybe he doesn't learn any lessons, but, like, we do. And we see her, you know, certainly being a better, bigger person than him. So I don't know. It's a comp- it's complicated. Like he sets it up and like, even again, and it happens, I think the third time, the third joke is um, in the newsreel montage where they shot, they show Marla from like yeah. 30 yards away. And they're like, after <laughs> talking about how cute and pretty everyone is, and they're like, Marla Hooch, ain't she a hitter? Um, but then, like, after you get to the, you know, the three, you know, the rule of threes joke, basically, they write, like, they give her humanity and, like, you get to see her, like, be vulnerable. She gets married. That's, like, the next scene with her. I mean, you know, it it happens very quickly and I don't think it, like, it, I'm not going to say it, like, negates those jokes or whatever. And if if you have a problem with them, you're probably not going to feel like they're earned or whatever, but I don't know. To me, it, to me, I feel like it, I don't know. It represents a time, both nineties and the forties where like, that is how people treated each other, especially women of that kind. Um, I think, I think also in the depiction of Lovitz and, in, and, and in Marla, there's a sense of like, even if the filmmakers thought that Marla wasn't an attractive woman, that's just who she was. That doesn't mean she's not, she doesn't have humanity. Right. That doesn't mean we shouldn't right. be decent to her while others aren't being decent to her. Or like, even if there's a few jokes at her expense, that doesn't mean that we can't overall be decent to her. And I think they feel the same way about John Lovitz's character. Hey, there's a lot of creeps and there's a lot of assholes in the world. That doesn't mean they don't deserve some kind of humanity or moment here. Like you love John Lovitz's character, even though, you know, he's awful. Yeah. But by the time he walks away, you sort of you sort of like this guy, and even at the end, when you see the older version of him, it's like a delight to see him because he did means you know he helped these women get to the place where they are, and like I think that there's like a gratitude to him. Um, but like again, like you know, all of the men, all of the male characters in this, even you know, I feel like Gary Marshall is the one unlikable <laughs> character, <laughs> um, but like they're also they're all played by like incredibly endearing and personable i mean maybe yeah, john Lovett sweet empathetic sweet, but you know as a I mean, kid, david straytheron right like he oh yeah i mean the best oh, he's always the best um 
but like, you it know, is it is it is like a real rogues gallery of male sweethearts. Like it's all sweetie pies in this movie, right? It's like Tom Hanks, Bill Pullman, uh, David Strathairn, <laughs> uh, John. I mean, John Lovitz is not really a sweetheart. No, but it even, is some of, even Gary Marshall. Yeah, Gary. Like not he's not playing a sweetheart, but he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. It's just a bunch of cuddly guys who are basically good people. And I think that like you know they're also their characters. I think are at least with like Jimmy Dugan and especially, you know, he's trying to be a hard ass because he thinks he's supposed to. I mean, the whole no crying in baseball thing. You're right. It's just like, this is how, this is how we do it because we, this is just, he has no alternative and he hasn't considered the fact that like, you know, he gives the example of his, like his coaches treating him like shit. And it's like, well, he didn't have to. And just because we did that, like, doesn't mean everyone has to experience that. And that's oh a very yeah, inspirational it's... thing. You know, I feel like, you know, we see that with, I, I saw that within a lot of like female, older female friends, like after the Me Too movement, you know, of just being like, you know, women of, you know, in their early forties were like, well, we got, we learned to toughen up. Like these younger generation have to toughen up too. It's like, sure. But like, isn't the point of like all the stuff that we went through is like the next generation has it easier. Like we can't be yeah. bitter because you know, people 20 years younger than us expect have higher standards for themselves and the way they want to be treated. Um, so I think that that's also, it gets to like, I think that plays into the role of those characters too, is that they're, they're products of their time and they're, I think that's why they're so well-written. Like they're not fake people. Like they're, they feel so real because even their, I don't know, their worst attributes are very human and you understand or you can figure out why they're that way without it having to explain it to me. Like we don't have to see Jimmy's backstory, you know? Right. Which yeah. was a TV show. We would have a bottle. Oh God. An entire episode yeah. about Jimmy's career in baseball or possibly more than one, right. you know, that just simply informed why he was a jerk. Yes. And you're like, we just, rather we, than we just being a jerk, that he's a jerk. Like, yeah, we've I mean, all like met jerks and he's a jerk. It's really, I think it's powerful for me to watch someone who starts a film being a complete piece of shit and through his own learning <laughs> becomes slightly less of a piece of shit. And you're rooting for him. I mean, these are people that you're rooting for. And like, that's, that's what I want in a character. I want to root for them to like something good happen to them. I mean, early, early a league of their own. Jimmy Dugan is really an amazing character and performance by Tom Hanks. And you can't say he's not being brave in a certain way. He's being like such an absolute piece of shit. Yeah. Like the entire time, like very unselfconsciously, you know, um, the scene where he's like, look, I know what they pay me to do. I come out, I smile, I wave my little head. <laughs> That's like, um, oh my God, what's his name? A.D. Bryant's husband level stuff. Connor O'Malley. Oh, yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. he's doing like, it's fantastic. It's great. It's great. And it's very un-Tom Hanks, yeah. Another great um, piece of trivia on IMDb. Hillary Clinton is a fan of this movie and quoted a, <laughs> quoted, quoted a line in a graduation speech. Yeah, seems about right. Hey, on that note, Ricky, do you want to you do our questions at the end of the uh, um, yeah. Prior to marrying Donald Trump, actress Marla Maples auditioned unsuccessfully for this film. I did see that Lori Petty talked about that in an interview. It was her proof that everybody was auditioning for this movie. <laughs> like, um. Yeah, I want to talk about, I want to do the questions in just a second, but um, 
I want to talk about Madonna's song at the end oh, of the movie. God, yeah, yes, please. Um, one, one. I love the song. It's great. But isn't it's great. it? It's such a downbeat, almost tragic song to play over like this wonderful. I mean, I love it. I think it works beautifully. But it's kind of a radical idea. Like you have this great, swelling, beautiful ending where all these women come together, and then you just play this really sad song <laughs> over the memories of them playing baseball. I mean, I think it talk about, I mean, this is where I'm like, maybe I'm searching for subtext, but like, <laughs> and maybe this is me, you know, three or four days after Roe v. Wade being under overturned, but like it did, you know, it, it, this used to be my playground. It's very nostalgic and it's, it's wistful because exactly. it doesn't exist anymore. And these women, you know, and, and David Strathairn has that great monologue when Gary Marshall wants to shut down the league. He's like, we asked all these women to, like, drop everything, and now we're expecting them to just go back to normal and, like, take care of the kids, cook dinner, and you know, for their husbands. And, the, you know, we don't, we're not expecting the men to come home and and evolve themselves. And so I think it's really interesting. You know, this didn't, the, the girls' baseball league did not last very long. I think it was, like, three seasons, maybe. Yeah. And then, you know, and you think about, like, what happens for women between 1946 and 1973, you know, where, yeah, right. and even between 1973 and 1992 when this movie came out, I mean, it's, I, I mean, it's really just... powerful, it's a powerful thematic moment that doesn't, that doesn't explain itself. It just is. And I think the movie, Yeah, I completely the, agree. The best parts of this movie is that it just exists and like you if you want to just see like the fun positive stuff, like it's all right there. It's right out in the open. It's like a great sports film, but like there's so much more deeper to these characters that like I think it it, it it's rewarding to watch it over and over again because I feel like I pick so much up every time I see it. I don't I, I I completely agree with you. I bring it up because it's another instance where I just don't think a filmmaker would do would make that decision now. I don't think yeah. even if it even if it wasn't a studio decision, I don't even think a a filmmaker who wanted to make a movie like A League of Their Own would 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 make a decision no. like that. Right. You know. It is surprising, yeah. It is. I mean, but I think you're right, Tyler. Like it's the nostalgic element of it and it's you have to understand a league of their own on, on some level as being a nostalgic movie. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got a frame story with elderly people. It's entirely set in the 1940s and like, and at the time that was a time that was in living memory for many people. Right. Which is wild to think about. Yeah. And, you know, so having a song that is explicitly nostalgic, you know, saying like, I remember some stuff that I used to like, mm -hmm. I mean, I can see, I think it works. I think it thematically, it's a fucking lock. Like, I think it's a perfect thing for the movie. Although I do think it's a little silly that they have a kind of like pseudo music video for it playing like during the credits next to the, next to the credits. Um, well, I was just, thinking, I, I used to love this song though. I love this song and I, yeah, I think it's, it's great. It's like, it's weird. I, this just popped into my head, but it's like, it's Madonna Springsteen song. Like it feels <laughs> very like, this is her working class. Yes. Like, like, celebration of the past um yeah just like everyday life and how it's things used her, to be. yeah and it's like it's not like anything else she recorded 
Um, it's not the typical song that would end like a crowd pleasing sports film, as Ricky said. So, yeah, yeah. I, just, I, I find I've always found it to be a really, a really powerful and, and great song. Um, yeah. So, Tyler, at the end of every um, episode, we ask three questions. Okay. Um, if if Chris asks you to be on the show, you get uh, alerted to those questions in advance. You didn't, you didn't email him if, the questions, if, Ricky. Are you I fucking kidding me? <laughs> it's become a thing. I can't. I, I don't want to break. I don't want to break my stride oh on this. Um, so the first question we ask is very simple: What's your favorite part of the movie? Um, God, I, I mean, I just love this time around. I really loved. The dynamic, I mean, this is not a scene that's a cop out, but it, the dynamic between Kit and Dottie. Yeah. And like what they, what they don't even realize about themselves is what I really loved. Like the fact that like Gina Davis, Dottie is like truly so good at what she does. She's inherently competitive without even recognizing it. She does it. She like is so stubborn in a very specific way and that she like, doesn't want to be easy on Kit in any possible way because she wants her to achieve the greatness that she believes in her. And she wants no, she has no ego about it. She just like wants to play the game. She doesn't care. Like she plays to the audience in service of helping others. Whereas like Kit from the very beginning is so desperate to get out of her older sister's shadow and has so much resentment for her. And like, even when Dottie tries to help her, she like is so stubborn in her own way. She's like, I have to do this on my own. And like, that is the central like question whether or not like Dottie drops the ball. Because if she did, she did it for Kit. And like, so that Kit would get the win and like be propelled on the shoulders of all these other women. Because that's so, that's just what she wants so badly. So I've been thinking about like just that dynamic between the two of them and like, how it's just so bittersweet and it just like really touches me. I don't have a sister, but it is. That's, that's really, that's really thoughtful. I liked the scene where Marlo was singing. Oh God. that's <laughs> I mean, there, there were a whole roadhouse, that whole dance sequence, like with Madonna oh, too. Amazing. It's so fun. Ricky. Well, I, I like, I mean, I, I love when, sorry, Chris, I, I love when Marlo's singing, but there's also two moments in that sequence where like, they say how they're going to get to go out to the roadhouse where they're like all smoking cigarettes behind the bus. And they're like, we're going to, we're going to poison her. And then they laugh. And then when they're at the roadhouse and Marla's singing on the stage, they're like, God, what did you, what did you give her? And they're like, we just took her out and gave her a bunch of liquor. And then they all laugh together again. It's like this really great bonding moment where (laughs) this crew of women like laugh very well as like a little gang together, you know, who are up to no good, this mischievous laugh, especially Madonna, like really has it down yeah. in those scenes. Yeah. But I love that whole sequence. I especially love, though, uh, Marla singing. I think it's <laughs> great. Chris, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I think Gina Davis looked real pretty in hats. Like, that was one of my favorite <laughs> things. I was just, yeah, her, her hair looked real nice, and she had all these real pretty hats. And I thought, she like, that was really hat really well. <laughs> It was amazing. Oh, she looks ama- she looks amazing in the movie. She looks incredible. And I mean, yeah, they basically Gina have Davis. her done up. They have her done up like a pinup in a certain way, but it's always somehow like a surprise when you look at her and you're like, oh, right. She looks like the most perfectly beautiful woman in the world because <laughs> you're just thinking of her and uh, every minute as like a competitive older sister and like right. somebody trying to whip Tom Hanks into shape. And then they'll cut to her and you're like, oh, wait, I- she's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. <laughs> like also. <laughs> 
it's somehow it's great it's really really good at doing that um, i mean she just, and also she also is just like her look looks so vintage in a way like even yeah, then like yeah yeah there's just something about her like even about the way her hair is like the way it's yeah. in these kind of like cascading pleats you know like, yeah um, there's a great scene with I like the scene with her and Tom Hanks on the bus too, which is just kind of a like unnecessary scene in the movie. It's just like a nice character moment between the two of them, it's the and it's really one of the only he scenes where he's not screaming, you know? Yeah, it's a very will they won't they type of thing, but it never gets into like a romantic. You never feel like it's forcing this like romantic tease. Yeah, the studio apparently wanted a kiss. I'm sure. And wanted them to get together, and and she said she said no. Um, I was reading this when we when we all signed on, but we didn't. I didn't record it, so I'm just going to read it because uh, this is what Mad- has Madonna thought of Gina Davis. But according to a handwritten letter Madonna wrote to photographer Stephen Mizell, she was miserable during production. "Quote: I cannot suffer any more than I have in the past month. Learning how to play baseball with a bunch of girls, yuck! In Chicago, double yuck." I have a tan, I'm dirty all day, and I hardly ever wear makeup. Penny Marshall, Laverne, Gina Davis is a Barbie doll. And when God decided where the beautiful men were going to live in this world, he did not choose Chicago. I have made a few friends, but they are athletes, not actresses. They have nothing on the house of extravaganza. I wish I could come to New York. I... Like I, Chicago men are my number one, so that's where I <laughs> disagree with Madonna. But she grew up in Detroit. She's Midwestern. She she wanted those dancer bodies in in Manhattan. So I get it. <laughs> um. So the other question that we ask Tyler is, um, uh, you know, we started this podcast a couple years ago. We called it Thirty Years Later, and then we somehow neglected to realize upon titling it that that every movie, if we did this podcast for a few years, would take place in the 90s. <laughs> so it's a 90s podcast. Yeah, completely um, accidentally. In all honesty, I know that seems impossible, but it is. <laughs> so what uh, what was the most 90s thing about this movie to you? Um, God. Uh, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell? <laughs> I was just going to say, I was, I was just going to say, and I feel like... I mean, I was going to say, and I think we can kind of all be in agreement on this, which is like the cast as a whole. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like this is an extremely 90s, Lori Petty, Gina Davis. Oh my God. I mean, I know Tom Hanks is still famous, but Tom Hanks owned the 90s. Yeah. Madonna. And, and Lori Petty has a bigger part than Madonna in this movie. Is like. Yeah. That is a very 90s. <laughs> Rosie Love O'Donnell. It. Yeah. I mean, even like Rob Reiner's sister is Betty Spaghetti. Um, yes, one of the, right, like, yeah. I feel like the, be- one of the best friends from Mad About You is also one of, yes, she's yeah. the one who lost her hat and Gina Davis says, piss on your hat. Has anyone seen my new red hat? <laughs> Has anyone seen my new red hat? <laughs> hey, but what a great, like Rosencrantz and Giltenstern are dead kind of moment in this movie. You know, I feel like I could just like read the quotes page on IMDb and like hit every line read perfectly because <laughs> I know them all by heart. Um, but yeah, I would say that I would say like the cast for sure is very 90s. Yeah, let's all just say that I agree. Let's take it. It's a unanimous consent. Uh, it's it's the cast. It's the fucking um, so our last question is, and we we kind of already touched on this here and there a yeah. little bit, but you know, this movie came out 30 years ago. What do you think we've grown out of 
that this movie uh, does. Mm. And it can be positive or negative, you know? Yeah. Oftentimes people immediately go to like, you know, uh, sexism, race, mi- micro microaggressions right. or something right. that are all over the place. But it doesn't have to be that. It can also be production. It can be. Anything. I mean, for me, it's the production. I just think that like, yeah. it just, I, I just cannot get over rewatching, you know, having watched so many things that were shot in the pandemic and like knowing the secrets because I've talked to so many craft people about how they made them. Like even Ted Lasso, like all the, you know, the, the crowd shots and how they, they work the CGI and all that stuff. Like just the fact that it's like practically made the crane shots. I mean, just like everything about it just feels like a movie that's never going to be made again. Um, And I felt that I felt this way after West Side Story. And I was just like, this is the last time this movie, like a movie like this is going to be made. Um, Yeah. Same where it's like period and like, the just huge ensemble and everyone's like firing off on all cylinders like the writing's so good you know and i mean the like the ensemble it's like i think the performances are so good that it can mask the fact that often they're like people don't have that many lines like madonna doesn't even really have that many lines in this movie no but she nails all so much exactly she's bringing so much to like anytime she's on screen and that's the way the movie has like all the way down the bench you know you ain't shutting me down (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just trying to think of lots of this part <laughs> isn't the dress a little tight uh, I don't plan on wearing it long <laughs> I think that um, the ensemble movie is really owned by Wes Anderson at this point because yeah. people are willing to take like the deepest pay cut right. to work, work with, with him and so, yeah. yeah and so he gets to sort of dump all of his money into the production of uh, of the movie and the production is still like pretty i think doesn't he make his movies mo- for like hovering around 20 million at this point i Probably. think they're like yeah yeah they're lo- they're lower budget than pta right. I-, I-, I think um but even pta's movies have generally after doing like two sprawling ensemble movies they're all like single or two character movies right yeah and even something like the French Dispatch, what that was essentially like four two character movies. Yeah, you know? it was like a little anthology. Um, yeah. yeah. I just don't think you can get really an ensemble movie because of what we were talking about before. It's like the process of writing an ensemble movie is really difficult and takes time, uh, and you need that. And then also casting all of these. Actually, what am I talking about? I mean, David O. Russell, but I mean, he's got all the money to do right. it. Right. There's still lots of ensembles, but I think if you watch, I'll try to do, I'll try to fix this. <laughs> my, my opinion here. I think sometimes if you if you watch an ensemble movie now compared to an ensemble movie at this period, like for a league of their own, they bought out all of these women's schedules. Yeah, everyone was there while they were shooting. Yeah, right. It's not like they were building the movie around each person's schedule right. so much. That's what that whole Madonna letter is. She's mad that she's there. She's yeah, right. Um, yeah. right. Whereas today, if it was Ariana Grande in this movie, she would come in for three days, film all of her scenes, and leave again. Yes. You Unless know? she's right. you would know, number one on the call. You could tell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could tell that it was filmed in three days because it's two locations. Yes. Right. Like all of you can you can see the the big actors making their cameos and then walking off, but really it's a two-person movie right. 
um you yeah you don't really get ensembles like this anymore i think it's just like you said too costly yeah so is that your answer too ricky yeah yeah i guess so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah what the fuck yeah i'll um, this too sounds great anyway i'm uh let's wrap it up anything else yeah i do want to shout out oh lynn cartwright who played older dotty the original lip sync assassin, if there are any RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> fans listening. But that the older the older Dottie was not Gina Davis in old age, age makeup. That was an actual actor who, who Gina Davis did ADR for. And it is seamless and it is beautiful and well-made. And like- She looks so much like Gina so Davis. So much like crazy. her. Talk about something that'll never happen again. Like they would, <laughs> they would have digitized Gina Davis's face. Um, it is weird that Gina Davis is doing ADR for that actress and none of the other actors are having ADR done for that. No, but like you also, Gina Davis is so, you can't yeah, she's not. Yeah, but yeah, right. yeah, shout out Lynn Cartwright. <laughs> I, I would also I, like to say- I didn't, I didn't know that until I read it on IMDb tonight before we started recording. I thought that was Gina Davis. And a lot of, I mean, I did too for a long time. I think it's like, it's one of those things that when people, rec- it's like, Finding the arrow in the FedEx logo. It's like, blows your mind. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. Danielle! You're not going to believe this. <laughs> Have you ever looked at the, the Baskin Robbins logo before? <laughs> <laughs> did you know that, did you think that that was Gina Davis at the end of A League of Their Own? In the, in the, old, the old lady? Uh, yes. Like, old, like Gina Davis in makeup. I fucking get this, all right. You thought that was Gina Davis in makeup? Would you be surprised to know that that's not that's the, that that's not Gina Davis, but that is an actress named Lynn Cartwright, and Gina Dav- and she's lit in Gina Davis's voice. She's very surprised to know. Wow! She's very surprised wow! I didn't know either. Wow, that was great. That was you great. Google it. You don't believe us? Ricky just taught a woman something new about a league of their own. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I've got some snarky comment that I'm holding. I don't know. <laughs> snarky, some snarky bullshit that I don't actually mean. <laughs> I do. I would, um, yeah, this is the other thing I want to say is I, I know I was joking around about this before, but I think the times call for more schmaltzy propaganda movies. And I call on all of our great filmmakers to put themselves to work, making broad based appeal, you know, Oscar bait, um, message movies well, this, that actually work. But, I mean, obviously this wasn't Oscar bait because it didn't get any Oscar nominations, right. but if, you know. I think I think that's, I, I I agree with you. I think though that it's harder to make a movie like this than, than, than we give credit yeah. because Hidden Figures is the only one that I can really think of that scored that I mean, recently, because I liked Hidden Figures. I, I thought too. it was well done. I, liked it too, I thought it was yeah. well done. It is more didactic than this movie though, certainly, yeah. you know. I would say that Tom, uh, Tom, I would say that Top Gun Maverick kind of almost hits those things. I mean, as someone, I don't give a shit about bad, bad, bad propaganda. I though. mean, bad look, propaganda. You, That's not the propaganda we're talking about. Good propaganda. Saying, if you give me the semblance of human emotions and stakes, like in a plot, like I will, <laughs> yes, flip those birds all over the place. I will sign up. I'll give like I will give money to the government to make more movies like that instead of shooting people or dropping bombs like that's what we need i just want i want the entire military to just be based around um, Flying like birds. american ninja warrior you know promising to give abortions to anybody you yes. know, like. i mean just 
let's be chill but i don't want i don't want to bomb people i just want to watch planes like a, a blue angels show <laughs> I just want to watch the planes. Then I don't want. To... That is what the military should be doing. I mean, right? I don't know why. I mean, well, I do know why. Like, if you've lived in Chicago, the Aaron Water show is like a nightmare weekend. That just sounds like you're being bombed for forty-eight hours. <laughs> yes. But um, so I understand why they don't do it more often. But I, I mean, like, I, I hate. I don't care for the original Top Gun because it has. It's so dumb, and like, there's no point or plot. Whereas, like, the new one actually, you know. They made just the slightest bit of effort, and it made such a difference. So for me, it was, I, I, I was I, also in many edibles. Yeah, I, so I, many edibles. Yes, so yes, I was almost in tears, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I only like the original Top Gun because I watched it so much as a kid. I have an appreciation for the way that it looks, and I think what is kind of subversive about mm-hmm. it. I found. Did you see, um, do you know that comedian Chris Fleming? Yeah, I know um, of him, yeah. He he did, he posted a Top Gun video that was like Amy Klobuchar's review of <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> and it basically was that like, it was him as Amy Klobuchar saying that Top Gun Maverick was the greatest piece of propaganda for the asexual community to ever come out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And and whereas what I love about Top Gun Maverick is that, or the original Top Gun is that it's an extremely sexy movie. Um, like it? the plot doesn't really work. I think so. I think so. They all have like great bodies, well, but also yeah, real I mean, bodies. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, obviously, like the classic gay football or volleyball yeah, thing, volleyball, and then just yeah. like the most disgusting French kissing I've ever seen on film. <laughs> like yeah. a lot yes, of sexuality for me to watch those. Films. But I think, I think Tony Scott lights a room a lot better than Joseph. Kosinski oh does. yeah. Yeah. You know? And so like that, that alone is to me like more sensual is just someone working with lighting that way. Yeah. Whereas I found so much of the lighting in Top Gun, maverick to be pretty flat oh was yeah, kind yeah. Of it was very modern like, in that way but uh no i just thought yeah i just I, I appreciated i mean my again my bar is on the floor for that kind of movie so like <laughs> the fact that there was a plot this time where and there was a reason why we were watching these people fly planes as opposed to just learning how to do it um <laughs> and being also, that movie. Was, Sometimes that's all you need if you've got great. Maverick was more yeah. propaganda for orthodontics than anything else. Like <laughs> that worked insane. There are have so many. They're so big. Uh, they're so have, great. Yeah. Have, have Have you gotten all your teeth replaced with famous people teeth, Tyler? Or have you done that? No, not yet. I'm not. That's way above my pay grade so far. But maybe Ricky just years. naturally has teeth like that. I think. Right? Is that? I have bad. Bo- I have bad bottom teeth. Yeah. My. Oh bottom. yeah. Look at that. Yeah. My Those need a little work. Yeah. I had braces for two years, so I've just ruined them. In hindsight, my mother's thrilled. <laughs> do you grind your teeth when you sleep? I don't. Uh, I don't know. I used to. I don't know if he's I asleep, do. Ricky. How would he know? Exactly. Dentist dentists tell you all the time. Every time you, no, but it's know, part of their racket, you know. Every time you go to the dentist, yeah. like, well, you need to buy a, time, a thing for your grinder. Yeah, the the I was at the dentist. The the hygienist and the dentist gave me word for word the exact same pitch for Invisalign. <laughs> They're oh like, many people think it's just to look good, but it's really a matter of your health. <laughs> they both said exactly that to me. Yeah. 
anyway, let's wrap up the episode. We can keep talking about dentists if we want to. Tyler, thank you so much for being here. Um, I think we all agree A League of Their Own is a classic. It's probably Penny Marshall's masterpiece. I can't remember one movie that she made after A League of Their Own. What came out? What did she make after A League of Their Own? Let me click through. Yeah, to IMDb. Uh, Oh, she made Renaissance Man. Danny DeVito goes into the army. She made A Preacher's Wife with Denzel and Whitney Houston. Riding in Cars with Boys, where Drew Barrymore gets pregnant, teen pregnancy. Oh, people really, people really like that movie. Yeah. I've never seen and it. And then she produced yeah. Cinderella Man and Bewitched, which I find to be uh, a terrible movie. I would never recommend, but an enjoyable Nora Ephron joint. So, <laughs> um, oh, wow. I have to say, I think that you're missing a really big entry into her on her in her directorial credits, which is the 2020 documentary about Dennis Rodman called Rodman. (laughs) Penny Marshall directed a documentary about Dennis Rodman in 2020. Are they like old friends? Have they been friends since the nineties or something? (laughs) You know that they've been friends since the nineties. It's like Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg or something. I feel like Penny is like a big basketball fan. You know, I just have that. I just have that in my head. True. <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like Penny and Carrie Fisher were hanging out doing Molly with Dennis Rodman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God! First of all, Tracy Reiner is her daughter, who plays Betty. Yeah, Spiegel. that's someone. Yeah, I guess I didn't supposedly realize. she. Was, Supposedly she went like to the general call audition baseball tryout things with like without her mom even knowing. But uh, you know, you hear those. I don't know how true. This that is how I found out Penny. Penny was married to Rob Reiner. I mean, what don't you learn when you're digging into a league of their own? <laughs> um, Tyler, how can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Tyler Coates, my full name, or. Uh, in the Hollywood Reporter. Oh, Lots of stuff there to, to peruse. <laughs> that's fantastic. Not yeah. to like wrap things up, Ricky, but I mean, when I was talking about dentists, all of a sudden it was an emergency <laughs> to wrap up the episode. <laughs> well, yeah, but then we started talking about Penny Marshall doing Molly with Dennis Rodman. <laughs> so now the episode can go on forever. Yeah, if anyone wants to expand upon that fantasy, they're more than welcome to. I mean, maybe that's the script that you work on for the next... If you develop for the next four years, <laughs> it takes place in the early nineties. There's some sports involved. We can get a ballad at the end. <laughs> That's a fun idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>